Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you do hold our future in your hands. We believe that you hold this moment in your hands. And we ask that you would, through your word, break our hearts, convince us, teach us, enable us to believe all that we have in you, because it is incredible, it is glorious. So speak to us now, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Oh, would you please grab your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews? Hebrews, that's <clears throat> towards the end of the New Testament-ish, page 1204 in my Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> We'll be in verses 5 through 9 today. So Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. <clears throat> well, I'm Nathan, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to preach from this passage today. Uh, but I want to begin by... Um, talking about King Arthur. Probably many of you are familiar with the legend of King Arthur. Somebody gave us some books recently, and one of those was uh, some, some of the tales of King Arthur. Probably a fictional figure, but maybe one of the most well-known kings of Britain, even though he probably didn't actually exist. But uh, the legend of King Arthur is that he was born to King Uther Pendragon, uh, but there was a prophecy made that the king would die while Arthur was still an infant, and so Merlin, the magician who had this prophecy, he recommended that Arthur be sent off into hiding uh, until he got a little bit older because there'd be a lot of chaos in the kingdom, and uh, some of the warring uh, rulers that were trying to take the throne might want to harm Arthur, and so Arthur's sent off to live um, with, with a knight, and uh, King Uther Pendragon does indeed die, and there's chaos in the kingdom. There's no, no king ruling over Britain, and um, there comes a point in time where Arthur grows up a little bit. He's probably a teenager, um, and he, without telling the whole story, he pulls this 
sword out of an anvil that's in a stone, right? We all know this. We've heard about this. And as he pulls that sword out, uh, it had been foretold that the one who could pull the sword out of that stone would be the rightful ruler of Britain. And so he pulls it out and eventually um, becomes king. But in pulling that out, he was revealing to everyone and actually revealing to himself because he didn't realize it until that time that he was the rightful ruler of the land. And, and so that legend has carried on for centuries and centuries. And then we've got s similar stories, but more updated, like the tale of Rapunzel. She grew up not knowing that she was born to royalty. Um, you got uh, Snow White, you know, grows up in a little cabin in the woods. She doesn't know who she is. You got these great uh, epic movies like The Princess Diaries. That was sarcasm, by the way. It's not really an epic. You guys are like, what? What did I miss in that movie? But it's the same premise, right? She, she grows up not knowing that she has the, uh, the uh, right to rule in the great land of Genovia. And uh, all of these stories, what they have in common is that you have an individual who's born with royal blood, but they grow up in obscurity, not knowing that they have the right to rule, not knowing who they truly are. And I think that the reason that these stories have persisted, and there are even more of them being written still, is that uh, in these stories, these kinds of stories, we hear a true echo of the story of humanity. And I believe that God has put kind of a receiver in our hearts that picks up on that echo when we hear this true story about humanity. And that, that's not just in our hearts, though, that we, that we have this true story as an echo. There's, the true story is written down for us in the Bible. The Bible tells how humanity was created to rule, how we fell from the throne into obscurity, and how God, out of sheer grace is restoring a new humanity back up to our rightful place in Jesus. And we get a brief summary of that in that passage that we just read in Hebrews chapter 2. There's, there's like a brief synopsis of that story right there in this passage that we're going to look at today. And so let's get into this beginning in verse 5. begins with, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And when we see the word for, we know that we need to look back at what came before. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, what came before was this word of exhortation and warning in verses 1 through 4. And here in verse 5, the writer of Hebrews is picking back up from actually chapter 1, verse 14, which is an argument that started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4. And so this is a continuation of it. And this tells us that verses 5 through 9 are a further demonstration that the eternal Son of God that we read about in chapter 1 at the beginning, the one who is the, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, that the eternal Son of God was incarnated in Jesus. And as these verses show us, as a true human, Jesus has become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's back in chapter 1, verse 4. This passage that we're looking at today is really the climax of the writer's argument that Jesus is superior to angels. And it's the climax because it's here in verse 9 that the writer tells us why it is that Jesus, though he was a lowly human, why it is that he became greater than angels, as was stated all the way back in verse 4 of chapter 1. And <clears throat> 
This is like the, the apex, the high point of this argument. And at the same time, this passage is also strengthening that warning that's there in uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Because the warning that we must, as it says, pay much closer attention, that warning flows out of the greaterness of the salvation that has been brought to us and declared to us by the Lord. The salvation that is far superior to that which came through the law, which was declared just by angels. And so all that kind of just sets the passage in its context and as we look at it more closely, one thing that we have to keep clear in mind is that in verse 5, when the writer says, <clears throat> the world to come, he's not talking only in terms of the future. I mean, it sounds totally future to us, the world to come, like we think yet to come. But we have to remember that this was written to those who were uh, mostly Jewish people, familiar with the Old Testament, steeped in Jewish tradition. And that phrase, the world to come, that was a common way of speaking about the messianic age, that time when the Messiah would come and establish his rule on the earth. And so it's, it's the new age sometimes it's called. It's, it's in the gospel called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's what was established when Jesus came. And so for the writer of Hebrews and for us, the world to come is past. But it's also present and future. It's past because, as I just said, it was established when Jesus came the first time. That's when the world to come, the age to come, the kingdom of God was first established. But it's also present for us because anytime someone comes to Christ, putting their faith in him, they're renewed by the Holy Spirit and brought into this kingdom of God, brought into the age to come, brought into this new world. And it's also future because this isn't going to be fully consummated until Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom in the new creation. And so the writer's telling us here that Jesus is superior to angels because this world to come is not ruled by angels. And then the rest of the passage, verses uh, 6 through 9, they're intended to make it absolutely clear for us who it is subjected to and why that's the case. As he goes on, the uh, writer seems to be anticipating a question that maybe we don't have, but it's, he seems to think that this question would have been in the minds of his original readers. And the question is, how could it be that Jesus is greater than angels when Jesus was a human, and humans are a being that is lower in majesty than angels? And so the writer answers that question, answers it from the Old Testament. He answers it by showing us that when the Son of God took on flesh, he became truly human, and that humans were created by God to rule over all of creation, and that includes angels. So he goes to Psalm 8. Let's look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And so when he says it's been testified somewhere, that somewhere is in the Old Testament in Psalm 8. We sang a portion of Psalm 8 uh, earlier in the gathering. And so these verses here in Hebrews, they're a direct quotation of verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 8. And verse 3, though, of Psalm 8 is this just awestruck meditation on the majesty of creation. It says, when I look at your heavens... The moon and the stars which you've set in motion. And then he goes on to say, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? So in, in light of the vastness of the night sky when we look up, what is man that you are mindful of him? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, if you've ever just been out at night, maybe on a camping trip or whatever, if you're blessed to live outside of the city where you don't have all the lights obscuring the glory of the skies, but have you ever just looked up at the billions of stars and planets, knowing that there are billions of billions more that we can't even see out there, and just said, compared to that, my little, my little bag of skin and watered carbon that I call a body and my little tiny life, it's insignificant. It's, it's like nothing. That's the kind of experience that if we're going to truly worship God, we need to have. And I hope you've had experiences like that. I hope that you often take time to stop watching TV, put down your phone, go outside, just look around at the majesty of what God has made. I believe that's one of the reasons why God has made this universe uh, just incredibly vast. But also when we look at, like zoom in on something and, and look closely, it's just so minutely complex. There's so much beauty. I think all of this is intended by God to put us in our place. So when we feel like, you know, like this compared to creation, and we recognize that all of this was just spoken, spoken into being by God. So for this small in comparison to the universe, how small are we in comparison to the God who just spoke this into being? What is man? And when we say that, when we recognize that, that puts us right where we should be, ready to be just blown away, awed by what the Bible reveals about us. And it's that we were actually created to be the apex of all of this. We were actually created to rule over all of this. Look at verses 7 and 8. You made him, speaking of man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So again, this is quoting from Psalm 8, and David's not just pulling ideas out of thin air in Psalm 8. He's drawing from Genesis 1. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God said, let them have dominion. Dominion means Rule. It means we were created to be the bosses of creation. And while uh, Genesis just talks about us ruling, having dominion over animal life, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that uh, this actually includes everything. So he says this in the second part of verse 8, back in Hebrews 2. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Nothing. This should, this should really just blow our minds. And God has put everything, all of this vast, glorious, intricate, wild, mind-blowing, beautiful creation under the feet of humans. And if we say, really? The Bible's emphatic answer is yes, yes. 
This is true. This is what God has done. And, and in an age when we are, um, we just see human life undervalued. We see it trampled underfoot. We see it discarded so easily. We need to marvel at this, that we were created for glory. We were created to represent God by ruling over all of his creation. And so no matter how insignificant your life may feel, this is true of you. You were created for glory. God created you for glory. And when we look at our own lives, this, this might seem ridiculous, like just, just too good to be true, like one of those fairy tales, like something that uh, a kid born into poverty in the slums might make, them, make up for themselves and dream about and create this alternate reality just so they feel better about where they're actually at and the hopelessness of their situation. Why, why is that? Why is this so hard to believe? Why does this seem like a fairy tale that often seems to have no connection at all to our reality? It's because what we were created for is not what we experience. Something happened. Let's look at the last part of verse 8. Here in the end of verse 8, the writer of Hebrews seems to be stating the obvious. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Remember, he's talking about mankind. That's in Psalm 8, he's talking about humanity. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So to put something in subjection means that it serves you. Do we see everything serving us right now? And I would hope that the answer, no, is obvious to you. I mean... Uh, how much of the world do you really feel like is in subjection to you, serving you? If you're a cat owner, is your cat in subjection to you? Is your cat gladly, willingly serving you? I would submit that no. Your cat has utter disdain for you. Your cat is manipulating you. Your cat is using you. And, you know, we... We do have the ability to tame some animals to some degree, but there is ample evidence that we no longer rule over creation. I mean, if we just take that, the, the animal kingdom, and, and just look at that one aspect of creation and think, okay, uh, do we see evidence there that animals are s subjected to humans? And I would say that we would see abundant evidence that animals are not subjected to humans. And the, and the most clear evidence is the fact that they kill us. A lot of us. Mosquitoes kill about one million of us a year. Snakes kill about 50,000 of us a year. Dogs, man's best friend, right? No, they kill about 25,000 of us every year. The tsetse fly kills about 10,000 people a year. The assassin bug, which I think is pretty aptly named, kills about 10,000 people a year. The freshwater snail carries parasites, kills about 10,000 people a year. So even stinking snails are not subject to us. 
And then that's not to mention all the other ways that the natural world just beats us down and destroys us. Everything from viruses to tsunamis. Plants poison us or give us allergic reactions. And, I mean, even the sun, the sun dehydrates us. It gives us cancer if we get too much exposure to it. And so right alongside the beauty and the majesty, the glory of creation, we see that this is actually a very dark and brutal world. Like We laugh about this because those things are so distant from us. But if you've ever known someone to get attacked by a dog or to be made extremely sick by some infectious disease that came through a parasite, you know it's, it's not actually funny. And this is a, a dark world where we appear to have no rule over really anything. And it's this very fact, the darkness of the world, that leads some people to re just reject the possibility of a good God, of a benevolent creator. <clears throat> um, Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known atheist, he observes all the suffering that takes place in the world, and he concludes this. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So that's his conclusion. But there's no designer, there's no creator. Everything that we see around us is just an inevitable outworking of the laws of physics. And so all suffering and death is inevitable also, which ultimately means that all of this is, is meaningless. And it's not just outright outspoken atheists who can come to this kind of conclusion. Like when we see the darkness of our world, when we see the kind of destruction that happens, when we see even our own bodies rebelling against us, we can begin to have these same kinds of questions. Is there really a good creator? Is this all design or is this all just a big accident? But knowing that we struggle with these kinds of questions, I want you to think about this. Imagine... Um, Imagine uh, a Toyota Camry hits a semi, gets just totally destroyed, totaled, bent up, mangled, taken off to the scrap heap, and you go and look at this, and you got a, a friend with you who says, hey, look at that. That's just a random pile of metal. It just, it just fell there. Look at it. It's, it's useless. Can't drive it. Doesn't doesn't really do anything. If you try to climb on it, it's going to cut you because all those jagged edges. And so you could conclude, yeah, because this thing is all busted up, clearly it's just random chance pile of metal. Or you could look at it and see, well, actually that one fender there is still kind of, it's got a nice contour to it. It's really smooth. And actually if I dig in a little deeper, I see that this engine thing, it's pretty intricate. It's pretty complex. And in fact... For car lovers, there's kind of a, a beauty to that. There's an intricate beauty in the engine. And the uh, reality is that none of us would look at a, a wrecked car and say, 
oh, that must have just happened by chance. None of us would look at it and say, well, that, that's just a random pile of metal sitting there. No, we would look at it and go, there's a, there's a design there. There's, that was put together by a creator, but something has happened to it. And so when we look at the bleakness of the world, we don't have to conclude from it that it wasn't designed or created with a good purpose and with goodness in it. There's actually another legitimate logical explanation about what has happened, why the world looks like this. And it's the conclusion that the Bible gives us. It is that God created everything. He declared it and made it very good, but that something happened, that there was a crash, there was a wreck, that creation is broken, and now our rule over it is broken too. And what happened, according to Scripture, is sin. Our first father, Adam, rebelled against God, and in doing that, he abdicated his throne. That means that he gave up his right to rule. And when Adam fell, his kingdom, all of creation, fell into ruin along with him. And all of Adam's children since then, including you and me, we have become rebels instead of rulers. We no longer have the right to rule over creation. We lost that right. When we rebelled against the high king over creation, God. And so now the the antagonism of all creation against us, it's constantly fighting us, it's constantly trying to destroy us. That's a constant reminder to us of just how far we have fallen from God's originally intended design. Clearly, as the writer of Hebrews says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. And yet, there's a note of hope there in the last part of verse 8. See that? It says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is, to mankind. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, building then on that note of hope, the writer of Hebrews begins the next verse with, but. And that's... That's really a glorious word here at the beginning of verse 9. It says, but, right after the bleakness that ends verse 8, comes this crescendo, this high point, this triumphant note of the passage. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so, yes, the world is Broken, and we have fallen far from what we were created for. But here's what we do see when we have the eyes of faith. We see Jesus enthroned over all. We see him ruling where Adam and all his race were intended to rule. In this new creation that's already begun, all things have been subjected to Jesus. See, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 to show that Jesus is superior to angels, as he's been arguing all the way from chapter 1. First of all, because Jesus is truly human, and humans were created by God to rule over all creation. And he's saying that the dominion of humankind that David marvels at in Psalm 8, as I said a little bit ago, it includes angels. So it's clear here, though. He says, for a little while, man was made lower than the angels. For a little while indicates that that's not going to be true forever. And the Apostle Paul affirms 
that when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? We're going to judge angels. And this is fulfilled in Jesus. All things, angels included, have been subjected to Jesus. Um, we've recently started singing the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And there's a line in there that I, I really love. I love the song, but one of the lines that I love in there is, says, um, um, See the true and better Adam. See the true and better Adam. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the true Adam because he succeeded where Adam failed. He did what Adam didn't do. Jesus never once rebelled against God. He obeyed him perfectly. He is what Adam was supposed to be. But he's also the better Adam. For many reasons, he's better, but connected to this passage, Jesus is better than Adam because Adam was made lower than the angels, but Jesus is infinitely above the angels in glory and in honor. He was only lower than the angels for a little while. He's the true and the better Adam. But then the writer addresses this question. Why is Jesus crowned with glory and honor above all, even above the angels? And we might expect him to say, because Jesus is God. And that's a theologically true statement. But it's not what the passage says. Look at it. Look again at verse 9. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why was Jesus crowned with glory and honor? It's because of the suffering of death. And this is, this is deep. This is wrapped up in the mystery of the incarnation, so don't be surprised if your mind hits like a, 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 a bump or like a wall where you just feel like your mind is broken a little bit in trying to understand the incarnation. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is both truly God and truly man. Uh, there's a portion of one of the ancient creeds of the church It speaks of Jesus this way. This is from the Athanasian Creed. It says, He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the, God, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. This is a great mystery, but it's the clear testimony of Scripture about our glorious Savior. And so the writer of Hebrews is showing us that while the eternal Son, being truly God, has always been crowned with glory and honor, infinitely above all created beings, Jesus, being also truly human, was born and grew to manhood lower than the angels. And after dying on the cross as a true human, in his humanity, he was crowned with glory and honor, being raised to the place of king over all creation because of this, the writer says, because he humbled himself under the will of God even to the point of death. So his exaltation is the reward for his willing 
humiliation. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the most truly human person who ever lived because he is the only one who has ever completely lived out the purpose for which humans exist. Jesus went low to regain man's throne. And here's an incredible part of the gospel that perhaps for many of us, we don't reflect on often enough. Maybe we've never heard this or thought about this. But I would suspect that most of us don't reflect on it often enough. And it's this, that if we put our faith in Jesus, if we hold fast to Jesus to the end, that he restores for us also what was lost in the fall. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, He did this, tasted death. Uh, he, he was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus took on humanity. He died, he rose, he ascended to glory so that he might taste death for us. And death is the ultimate representation of all that was lost in the fall, isn't it? It's the ultimate sign that the creation is no longer under subjection to us. Creation kills us. And so because death is the ultimate sign that we no longer rule over creation, when Jesus rose from the grave conquering death, it was the ultimate sign that creation had been subjected again to its rightful master. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, ruling over all at the right hand of God. And this is the almost too good to be true part of the gospel, that we will reign with him. We will reign with him. And this is something that we couldn't make up. We wouldn't make up. Um, if it wasn't here for us in Scripture, I'm not making it up. We already heard that passage saying that we, we will judge angels. Here are a few more. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. For all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And here's a passage that just says it straight out. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him we endure, we will also reign with Christ. And we could look at numerous passages that speak of the inheritance that we will receive from God. And that inheritance is the inheritance of glory that Jesus earned. We receive the benefits of that inheritance right along with Jesus because we've been adopted into the family of God. This is a glorious part of our hope that we will inherit the right to rule the new creation along with Christ. This is, this is like the ultimate rags-to-riches story. We, us, weak, dirty, former rebels against God, we're not just going to be tolerated by God in eternity. We're not going to be like, all right, I saved you just because I wanted to show my grace, but just kind of stay over there, out of the way. No, we're actually going to be ruling over a renewed creation. 
And we get a glimpse of what this kind of like a preview, a little bit, of what this might be like in the Gospels through the miracles of Jesus. Jesus, in doing his miracles, he was giving us a snapshot of, of the kingdom of God. And so just remember when he calmed the storm with just a word? He was ruling over creation. And so I, I'm not going to say that in the new creation we're going to be able to just speak a word and calm storms. I don't know that. If that were the case, that's going to be pretty awesome. But I do know that it's showing us that in the new creation, we won't have to be afraid of the sea. We won't have to be afraid of drowning. We're going to rule over it. Creation will no longer be our enemy. And how could this be true? Because it sounds like a fairy story, right? How could this be true? There's one word, and it's there in verse 9. Grace. Grace. Only by the grace of God. Not because God saw that we were somehow more deserving or better equipped or better suited for ruling over creation. Not at all. We deserved only eternal death and suffering, separated from God and separated from every good and enjoyable part of creation. That's what we deserve. It's only by God's unfathomable grace that we will be raised with Christ to glory. Grace is unmerited favor, unearned favor, unearned blessings, undeserved, and actually anti-deserved. That's the only reason that any human being other than Jesus will be restored to our original exalted place over creation the grace of God. And so there's no, there's no place for pride here. I mean, if we know ourselves at all, we know that we would be foolish to even imagine this if God hadn't told us that it's true. But it is true. He told us. So believe it. Enjoy it. Hope in it. And then the last word of verse 9, it demonstrates just how, just how expansive, just how big the grace of God is. It says that Christ tasted death for everyone. Because of God's abounding grace, this substitutionary death is for everyone. And from many places in Scripture, and as we'll see even in the book of Hebrews, we, we know that this doesn't mean everyone without exception, as if Jesus died for every person who has ever lived or who will ever live. This means, rather, everyone without distinction. Everyone without distinction. So, remember, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish people, those who were given the law, those whom God had revealed himself to, those who had the Old Testament sacrifices and laws of God saying, this, this is how you come to God. This is the way of salvation. And so in writing to these Jewish people, the writer wants to make it perfectly clear that Jesus didn't just die for Jews. So part of the greatness of this salvation is that it expands God's work beyond the Jewish people. It expands it so far, in fact, that one day it will include people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so he's saying that there, there is no ethnic requirement to benefit from Christ's 
death. And we can say also that there's, there's no requirement of social standing, family, history. You don't have to be from a certain bloodline. You're not qualified to benefit from the death of Christ because of how well you've lived your life. And on the other hand, you're not disqualified because of how much you've wrecked your life. In fact, 1 Timothy says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save. And he doesn't just, he doesn't say Jewish people. He doesn't say good people. He doesn't say people who've attended church enough. He says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. Jesus Christ came to save every sinner who comes to him in humble faith. He raises up to glory with him every sinner who puts aside any hope of achieving glory for themselves. He guarantees a glorious eternal reign over creation to any sinner who doesn't try to establish their own kingdom for their own glory here and now. And so the question is, are you a sinner? If you're a sinner, then you qualify to be saved by Jesus. Only trust him. Submit yourself to him. Lower yourself before him, and he will raise you up at the proper time. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus? Have you trusted in him? And if not, I wonder, why not? Don't you want to have this to look forward to? Don't you want to see what this world is going to be like when all that's broken about it is fixed, when it's working as beautifully and perfect as God originally designed for it to? Don't you want to live in it without fear or pain or sorrow? Why not trust in Jesus right now? And if you do, if you're saying, yes, right now, I want to, I want to trust in Jesus, then please talk to one of us. Talk to one of the pastors um, or put it on a connection card and drop it off in the box in the back before you head out today or just give the card to one of us if you'd like to talk, but maybe not today, maybe later in the week. We would love to um, just to begin walking with you on this journey of faith, so please let us know. And if you don't, though, if you don't yet believe, in the next few minutes as others come up to take communion, please, please don't come up. But as others do, we invite you to pray. If you feel... Uh, a yearning towards this, but there's just something holding you back, I encourage you to pray. Say, God, help my unbelief. I want to believe. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. Ask God to enable you to believe. But as others come, as I said, please, please don't, don't come forward. This, this communion meal we also call it the Lord's Supper. It's a time for um, believers. And so for those of you who are here who are believers, whether you're a member of Piney Ridge Church or not, if you are believing in Christ, you've had that 
profession of faith affirmed by a church in baptism, then you are welcome to come. But I just want to give you this to, to meditate on as you take communion today. Each week, this time of communion, it is an opportunity for all of us as believers to pay closer attention, as Hebrews 2 says, to pay closer attention to the greatness of this salvation, to the graciousness of this salvation. So as you come up and you take the bread that represents Christ's human flesh that was hung on the cross for you, as you take the juice that represents Christ's human blood that was poured out to make payment for your sins, revel in that. Revel in the incarnation. Revel in the gracious love of Jesus that he took on full humanity so that he could die for you. For you. In your place. That Jesus tasted death in your place. Not that you no longer have to experience death yourself, but that your death is no longer a death required by God to make payment for your sins. Jesus died tasting death to do that to make that payment for all who come to him by faith. And by faith, you're joined to his death, which means that by faith you are joined to him in his resurrection and all the glory that will follow when Christ returns and raises us up with him. And so come, just worshiping, praising God for his grace, for the, for the glory of what he has called us to in Christ. And so if you're, um, if you're new here and you're not sure how we do this, I'll, I'll have you stand in just a moment. Um, you'll exit that way. You'll come up to the front to one of these tables. If you need a gluten-free communion, it's over here on the far left. You can grab one of these, take it back to your seat. And you can take communion there by yourself or your, if you're here with family. Um, we, we encourage people to, to pray with family or friends around them and to celebrate together the grace of God. So let me pray and then... I'll ask you to stand, and then for those who should, you can come. God, this, this grace is beyond us. It's beyond our comprehension. If it weren't for your Holy Spirit working in us, it would be beyond our ability to believe. Because we're, we're talking about invisible realities. We're talking about eternity, which is a concept we can't even grasp. God, would you lead us to believe, lead us to worship you because you've revealed truths about yourself that, that just show how much greater you are than us. And we thank you that in Christ, you have condescended to draw near to us. And you are near to us even now. We pray, Spirit, that you would make that nearness very present and real to us as we come to the Lord's table so that Jesus would be lifted up, that our hearts, our hopes would be lifted up in him and in him alone. And we pray and we come to God in him alone. Amen. Do you stand and for those who should, you can come to the Lord's table.